1: Hello, this is Mike Pesca, host of The Gist, the Gist Standard, the Gist Regular, the Gist, okay, let's elevate it a little bit, the Gist Original Recipe, which is great, a beloved podcast that started over nine years ago. But you want more? You want something else? Well, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com and you could get this entire show without the ad. Save your time. If you want to add on the time you saved, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com and get the Gist Plus where we bring you extended interviews, plus bonus segments that you never even thought you knew you needed. Subscribe.mikepesca.com and enjoy all of the Peachfish offerings. And now enjoy the show. It's Friday, March 10th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Oscars are Sunday, and I have seen every Best Picture nominee, except for two. Want to guess the two? They are Maverick, the Top Gun Maverick movie, and Avatar, The Way of Water. Wow. The two that everyone has seen. I have seen the ones that no one has seen. Why? I'm not a snob. I'm not an astete. I mean, I'm enough of an astete to know what an astete is, although to wonder if I'm mispronouncing it. It's not that. The reasons I see movies are, one, to bond with my wife, two, to bond with my kids, three, to provide intellectual stimulation for myself, often... The bonding with my wife leads to an intellectually stimulating movie. The ones with the kids are often comedies or Marvel movies, which I like, which are entertaining. I'm all in favor of, but I'm not going to go out of my way to see a movie that's just Flashes, Space, Wolverine, without a kid sitting next to me. In fact, my kids have soured on the Star Wars movies, not all the Star Wars, well, yeah, also the Star Wars TV shows, and therefore it's a little bit of an impediment for me. How can I, with all these other things to do as an adult, justify spending so much time in Coruscant? Plus these entertaining movies, the light fripperous ones, you know, like Avatar and Top Gun Maverick, they're running two and a half to three and a half hours long. So they're quite a time suck. I do have to say though, as a list of best picture nominees, it's a fine sorting mechanism. I do get suggested movies I might not have otherwise seen, or at least it helps me prioritize which movies to see, and I'm glad that I've seen them all. So I actually like the Oscars for their list of nominees. I don't like the Oscars for the actual show and whichever movie they name Best Picture. I think that just like voting for the most popular in high school, it's done wrong. We should not in high school have been asked who is the most popular. That's asking your impression of someone else's impressions. We should just have been asked vote for the person you like the most and then you will determine the most popular. If Oscar voters were told to vote for the picture you like the most, they'd maybe come up with a better picture than the one they come up with. Because the one they come up with is this is the picture that we want to tell the world is the one we like the most. This is our signaling as the best picture. And something that has always gone on in all subjective art and the giving awards thereof, but it's gone on more than ever. The person who really best put his finger on it was Wesley Morris, two-time Pulitzer winner, just the best writer I think on movies and culture and a great guy. And he wrote about something called the Morality Wars. And in 2018, he wrote, It leads to the Oscars now being more a moral purity contest in addition to an artistic sporting event. At award shows, the nominated works have become referendums on the moral state of the business. Their quality has become secondary. Maybe the ratings are down because no one's seen the movies and the broadcasts are too political. Maybe it's because no one wants to watch an industry prosecute itself. Yeah, a lot of that is going on. I like The Rex. I know, however, the winner will mean something beyond the best of these worthwhile films. It will mean something like, here's the movie that we really need for you to think that we think is the best. There are a couple of pictures among the Best Picture nominees that might be more likely to be grouped in the category that Wesley is talking about. I would say that Tar is probably seen as more of an anti-cancel culture movie, whereas Women Talking is seen as right or correct or politically correct. But you know what? I don't care. I really liked women talking. I liked women talking more than tar. Women talking was criticized as kind of a play. I like plays. I didn't dislike tar, but I just thought women talking really worked and I'm glad I saw it. Part of discernment on the part of me, the viewer, is to say, I don't care. If they say this is only on the slate because it says the right things, it also says the right things best. There is a movie I think that's being punished for it's having a wrong ideological lens. It wasn't nominated for best picture. I don't know that it should have, but the movie I'm talking about is The Whale. Brendan Fraser might well get the best actor award for his portrayal of the lead in The Whale, but the way the camera lingered on the corpulence of Fraser, it's just out of step with how things are supposed to be done in this 2023. It's insensitive, and I do think that insensitivity, that perception of insensitivity, but also the offending of the sensitivities of a certain kind of critic is why it's getting only a 66% on Rotten Tomatoes. Now, that's not that bad, but when you look at top critics, it's getting a 51%. 35 negative reviews of The Whale, 36 positive reviews. This compared to a 91% audience score. To compare two megafauna films, The Whale is getting a 66%. Cocaine Bear is getting a 69%. I will read from you the Rotten Tomatoes write-up of Cocaine Bear. Despite Cocaine Bear's half-baked plot and uneven acting, the titular fur fiend scene-snorting frenzy will give B-movie enthusiasts a contact high. Despite the bad plot and acting, what else is left? I love the sets in Cocaine Bear and the bear's costume was very bear-like. The prop Coke seemed real, four stars. A critic can not like the whale, sure. But 35 of 71 critics express a view that's so out of step with the general audience, the academy, the experience of voters, even their own consensus, even the ones that didn't like it all said, oh, but Brendan Fraser was amazing. So something, something big about this movie had to work well for people to be bowled over by the performance that absolutely dominates it. I do think we're falling Into the trap that Wesley wrote about the whale is somewhat or the lack of uh, best picture nomination and maybe the poor critical reception among the top critics is something of a referendum on the moral state of the business. And that is not what I turn to award shows for, to the extent I turn to award shows at all. I like art that offers a lens onto our society. I'm less interested in endless referenda and if the lens comports with what we wanted to see in the first place. On the show today, I shall talk about a big LA Times story about driving while white and polluting. But first, movies cost tens, sometimes hundreds of millions of dollars to make, so you got to get things right. But how does a producer know if he's gotten things right? Get me Getz. My next guest is Kevin Getz, and this guy speaks audience. He is the guru of audience research, and he translates the research that he calls, feeds it to movie makers who craft their movies based on his findings. He has a new book out called Audienceology, How Moviegoers Shape the Films We Love. This interview will be included for Pesca Plus listeners with extended extras that I think you will love in your Plus feed. Go to subscribe.mikepesca.com to avail yourself of that. And now, Kevin Gatz up next. One of my favorite podcasts is called Don't Kill the Messenger. It's hosted by Kevin Goetz and features discussions with very important figures who worked on the movies you loved, talking about very important decisions that made the movies you love just that. And these decisions would not be known, weren't known to me, and in many cases were not known to the public were it not for the revelations of this podcast. Because Kevin Getz is the guru of audience research and the people he has on aren't necessarily the stars. Sometimes they're the the directors, but they're the producers or the editors or people who use Kevin Insights to tweak and change, or in some cases, really, really switch up these movies And eventually they become embedded in our consciousness. Kevin also has a new book called Audienceology, how moviegoers shape the films we love. He has a really interesting job and really interesting insights. I've been wanting to get him on for a long time. Now he's here. Hey, Kevin. Hey, Mike. So good to, uh, to do this finally. Yes. So early on in your book, you talk about Ang Lee's, the great director Ang Lee's assertion, you know, no one would tell Picasso what colors to use. Okay. And you acknowledge maybe you wouldn't dictate artistic choices to Ang Lee, but you might want to give them to Mick G Ah. (laughs) or someone maybe not quite as exalted. So I I had an answer in my mind about why this is a little different from finagling with a great artist, but what's the best argument for that that you have? Well,
0: the art form is a different art form. And the art form of movie making, of filmmaking, of cinematic arts is one that encompasses a group of people. It's not just one person. Sure, you can go back to the auteur kind of uh, 70s movies that were paid for and, and, and starred and directed by the John Cassavetes type of movies. Uh, incidentally, uh, Jenna Rollins happens to be one of my great friends, best friends, actually. And, and uh, so I got really firsthand information on how they did all of that. And that's one thing. And they're making movies that are really John's, in that in those times, John's singular vision. But most movies are a director's vision and or a producer's vision, but executed with major artists who contribute to that vision. And unlike a painting that if the singular artist didn't like what she or he were painting, could put it back into their closet, uh, a novelist, she or he could, you know, write it and, Put it in the drawer if they didn't like it. When somebody hands you a hundred million dollars to make a movie, they do have a seat at the table and an opinion that will and sh- can often positively affect the outcome uh, of the movie. And why is that important? Because they're making it for an audience. They're making it to make money, and. To not include the audience who it's being made for in that conversation, I believe is very short-sighted. And certainly people at the studios, people who are financing movies, even most filmmakers really understand that that is part of the process to include the voices of the people who are ultimately going to see it. And I don't mean a creative decision here or there. I'm talking about the overall sort of satisfaction of the piece. You know, is it intellectually and emotionally satisfying? Right. And that, I think, is what
1: separates the different art forms. Is it easier or even more appreciated by the directors and producers of the comedy genre? Just, uh, I don't know if this is a representative sample, which is something you're invested in in your industry, but of the four blurbs on the back of the book... Ch- Charlize Theron is one, and the other three are Ben Stiller, Sasha Baron Cohen, Judd Apatow. You talk on your podcast; you always mention Stiller and Sasha, and these guys love you because, as comedians, they want to know where the laugh is. So that's my question: Is comedy an easier genre for your magic to work with? No, it
0: is. It's not easier. It is a, perhaps more necessary for the filmmaker to hear how the audience is reacting to it. It's its its more externally available as information right. because you're getting a reaction. Same with a horror movie. You might go to, you know, but in a drama, it's very hard to see where you're landing from an audience perspective if you're just listening and there to observe. But I was with Judd last night, Judd Apatow last night uh, for a screening, a new movie that he's producing, and he has his pad and he sits in the audience, and he puts himself within the audience. He doesn't isolate himself, and he takes notes, and he's listening. And they record the audience too. You know, often then they'll play back uh, how it re, how it played in terms of the cadence. Judd is really known for doing joke insertions, changes. See how this one played because he'll shoot more footage in a particular um scene and so
1: and also because he embraces improv often with his actors so that gives him four or five different versions of a scene a joke a beat he's just
0: great he's just so uh great because he's so open to uh to hearing what the audience has to say and even i'll come out sometimes he's like what are the numbers and i'm like you know f the numbers it's like let's get the movie to play
1: and he'll he totally recognizes that and appreciates that as does sasha as does Ben. The end result of your insights and methods are often uh, suggestions on either how to change the movie or why the movie might not be working in the way the artist behind the movie wanted to work, which isn't mm-hmm. to say you dictating a change, but you saying this character who you wanted the to be, say, be sympathetic to the audience is finding problems with him or her. So that's one of the things that you do. But the other major thing is marketing. Um, if if there were a pie chart, what would that look like in terms of how your insights, and I'm sure they're interrelated, but how they wind up uh, in the final form, changing a movie and how they wind up marketing the movie. 80, 20, 80 playability, 20 marketability.
0: Mm -hmm. Screenings are meant to, first of all, let me educate your audience for 10 seconds or 20 seconds about what a screening is. We bring people to a central location, a movie theater. Two to 300 people, 400 people, we recruit them, they come in to see a movie. They are told that it's a work in progress before it starts and to stay in their seats at the end of the movie. At the end of the movie, we hand out questionnaires or digital devices and they fill out a questionnaire. After that, there were 20 people that were pre-selected who are going to stay after everyone leaves and have a deep dive discussion called a focus group about the movie. And then everyone leaves, and within 24 hours, we produce a full report that breaks down all of the reaction. So it's not just listening; it's actually getting real real time feedback, and then processing that data and coming up with an interpretation of what that all means. That's what a screening is, and the design the 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 purpose of a screening is to measure the playability, how the movie is playing in, with that audience on that given night in that given location. We also, during the pandemic, uh, sort of invented this great online screening platform called VirtuWorks. And VirtuWorks is, gives the ability for the filmmaker or the studio to stay at home and watch 200 people live around the country watching something, and the filmmakers get to watch people watching their movie. You scroll and see, and it's really cool and has great security and all of that stuff. Because obviously, security is paramount importance because of the, 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 um, the sensitivity of the IP. So marketability is what you are there to learn. How is your movie landing with an audience? How is the pace? Are there confusions? How is the story working? How are the characters landing? Do you invest in them? Are you investing in the journey? Is the hero, is the, are the villains good? Uh, is the ending strong? Those are the reasons that you do a screening. There is a secondary and tertiary sort of benefit from the screenings in that you learn from a marketing perspective. Maybe scenes and parts you'll want to use in your trailer. You'll want to know mm-hmm. who the audience is for. Like when I say that, uh, like who is your target? What demographics are sort of responding
1: most i would assume the better the playability the easier the the marketing or the uh, less of a hurdle you have not always not always well yeah that's my question has there ever been weird examples where you really did improve the movie but this kind of muddied the message oh yes many many times a movie has
0: great playability and really limited marketability and so you have to acknowledge that because, you know, you at the the powwow at the end when you're presenting the numbers. So while we do the focus group, they're doing preliminary number counting so that when the focus group is over, I can give preliminary results, and then we all go on our we go on our merry way. And then the next day, they get the full report with all the data. <clears throat> and sometimes you you see a movie that is um, uh, scoring. So high, but the recruit ratio, in other words, how many people, how many audience members did you have to invite to get one to show up, is so Mm. high that marketing goes in with that knowledge, knows that, uh uh-oh, this is going to be really hard, but they
1: love it. Yeah. So my listeners should understand the way you operate is sort of like a journalist with off the record. You can't divulge any of these changes, but then for the book and also for your podcast, you will have some of these people on. And if they want to tell the stories, then I guess it becomes part of the public domain or you're allowed to talk about it. So with that in mind, can you think of examples of the movie playing really well, but you really have to drag people to see it? Well, *Slumdog
0: Millionaire* uh, is a, an example that, um, if you if you look at the at the assets of that, just you know, and you say, okay, it's a movie with an Indian cast, and it is um, no name actors, and it is um, it just was it just was it had nothing commercial about it. Not, not anything, really, right? And mm-hmm. it played so well that despite the fact that it played so well, the critical response, and they screened the shit out of the movie uh, before it opened even, to do a program to get people talking about it, elevated it and made it a major success. And it won the Academy Award. Another example, Juno was a movie mm. that was really a very small movie from a marketing standpoint but really hit a chord and played right. so exceptionally well both happen to be fox searchlight movies and most of these examples are not major studio examples but mini majors or independent films my big fat greek wedding is a, probably the most well-known example of a movie that scored so well but did not have any major film stars in it. I mean, you had people like Lainey Kazan, of course, that that are wonderful actors, but no one that was a box office um, slam dunk. There was just something about that movie at that time that just spoke to audiences and it caught on like wildfire and was a major hit, despite the fact that it was really difficult to market.
1: Right. Has the audience, your test audience, ever been wrong? Oh, audience is never wrong. That's right. not the, the
0: right question, really, because it's not like you know people, people's feelings and people's thoughts are their thoughts and their feelings. What the answer to that is they're never wrong, but they may have been misinterpreted. Uh, mm-hmm. I would like to think that some of my personal value when I am brought to the table to work on their films, and I work on three quarters of most every film that leaves Hollywood attests tests, uh, is that there is a certain kind of scrutiny and interpretation that I'll bring to the table to try to be, I call myself an audience advocate. So I try to really understand what they're saying, even if they're scoring it this way even if they're saying something else and the scores aren't moving, I might come in and say, you know, why don't we think about maybe what they're really saying is blah, 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 blah. Can you think of a specific that fleshes that out? Well, uh, without getting specific, a movie I did last night where there there was a particular sequence that that was not playing as strongly as the rest of the movie. And so when they kept saying, this is slow, this is slow, and they heard that, now this is the third screening, they've heard that, they've heard that. But what I said was, what I heard, sorry, from the focus group was that they loved these, the character bonding and the three main leads together. And that was the only right. real part of the movie where they go their own ways. So I said, rather mm. than thinking of it as slow, think how we can intercut to bring them back together either faster or at least cut to them so that we don't they don't feel like they've left the movie for too long because they love the bond. So that is an example of it, I may be wrong, it may be wrong, but it's an example of what the audience might be saying that they're not actually articulating.
1: Right. That's the Kevin Getz value add. Well, I hope hope it is. I think it
0: is. Without doing too much self-promotion here, I have to say that I've watched so many movies. I've done well over 5,000 titles in my 35-year career. And, you know, if
1: I was an idiot, I'd have to learn something. So one trend I need to ask you about is the length of movies. There is – this is – literally a growing trend. And there was a time once that Lawrence of Arabia would be long and the Godfather two would be long and, you know, epics, legitimate epics would be long, but now so many movies, so many superhero movies are touching three hours. And I know it can't be good for the cinemas. That means they, they have one less play during the day. So that's true, but why is this really good for anyone? Our audience is saying they like these long movies. Okay. It's a it's a, a multi-pronged answer, but I'll try to be succinct. So you could be as long super- as uh, Avengers End, <laughs> endgame in your answer, yes.
0: Okay, so so superhero movies have a length because they are absolute theatrical plays. And the main criteria to see a movie in a theater right now is the experience. If it's experiential, if it feels like a ride, a carnival ride essentially, and they want to deliver a full meal. And so they are complicated, they are they are multifaceted plots. They are multifaceted um, characters integrated into this world, this universe. That's for those movies. The other phenomenon that has happened with the advent of streamers, streamers originally, originally were a place where filmmakers could experiment and be left alone to have their own cuts without the scrutiny of the audience to critique. And I never liked that for many reasons. Uh, And that got running times, and it also brought final cuts back to certain directors where they would say, I don't care, this is what I'm doing, et cetera, et cetera. The streamers have now completely turned around uh, that feeling because they know That what I said earlier, that the ticket to entry is not just content, it's great content, elevated content. And often the length of movies is not conducive to great content. It's too indulgent. right? It feels like, won't this thing end? And so that's a result often of not having the audience weigh in on the exhaustion factor, but yeah. then they started seeing many of them metrics of dropouts, drop people dropping out, and realizing they're losing engagement in many of these movies. So that's another side of the length question. The other one is COVID prevented a lot of movies from testing in theaters, and they were not coming onto the platform that we had created, Virtuworks, yet now much more universal adoption. So they didn't use audience response. So in some weird way, I equate most of the quote unquote fault of two lengthy movies on the fact that the audience was not involved enough in that that criteria, in that that decision-making process. And I think that that has hurt a lot of movies. There are movies that I see that go, I loved it, but it was 45 minutes too long. 45 minutes too long. That is not a good thing. Now, that doesn't mean that 45 minutes isn't brilliant. But what certain, at least American audiences are used to seeing, is a kind of a cadence. And they don't want to veer from that too much. So you've got to respect the audience. Once again, the art form marrying with who you're making this for right and so i think that's what it sort of comes down
1: to kevin getz is the host of the don't kill the messenger podcast his book is Audienceology: how moviegoers shape the films we love and if you go to kevin getz and he spells his name g-o-e-t-z kevin gets 360 you'll find him on instagram twitter the web all those places lots of commentary lots of insight kevin thank you so much mike thank you And for Pesca Plus subscribers, we'll have more with Kevin, including why Avatar is a transformative film, how he uses galvanic skin response to offer advice to filmmakers, the waning power of the film critic, and how audiences respond to on-screen penises. Subscribe to Pesca Plus. Subscribe.MikePesca.com. Don't miss out. And now the spiel. Last month, Jeff Boeing, assistant professor at the USC Saul Price School of Public Policy, came out with what I thought was an interesting study. Though it had the academic title, Local Inequities in the Relative Production of and Exposure to Vehicular Air Pollution in Los Angeles, it told a pretty compelling story. Pollution is generated disproportionately by the wealthy, which is to say, car owners, which is to say wealthy car owners are more likely to be white in a place like L.A., and disproportionately sucked in by poor Black and Latino residents. Two days ago, Terry Castleman, who's an L.A. Times data reporter, a Pulitzer Prize finalist, did a nice succinct write-up of Boeing's findings. L.A. residents who drive less are exposed to more air pollution, studies find And, as that Terry Castleman report noted, that the original study also noted a distinct racial effect, quote, even when you're controlling for everything else, a wider tract, meaning census tract, is going to be exposed to less air pollution. There is this consistent injustice of air pollution exposure, Boeing said. Now, Boeing, the researcher, his original tweet thread about his study that got 12,000 views. And Castleman, the reporter, his write-up of the study, which I thought was good and interesting, got 4,000 views so far. Then came this story, also in the LA Times, riffing on the original study. How white and affluent drivers are polluting the air breathed by LA's people of color. Sammy Roth, the writer of that story, took it in a personal direction. Quote, I couldn't help but consider my own complicity while reading a new study As a white guy who's lived on LA's west side for most of my life, I've benefited from the region's sordid history. This led to a backlash on the right, Sean Hannity, Ben Shapiro, putting this treatment of the original study in their crosshairs. So it's destined to become a talking past each other circus. But my question is, is Sammy Roth right? Can you accurately and fairly say how white and affluent drivers are polluting the air breathed by LA's people of color? Well, you can't say it. He did say it. And he's not lying. The study says that white people are more likely to be drivers than blacks and Latinos and less likely to live in census tracts next to the most polluted freeways. And those white people are disproportionately putting more pollution in the air and disproportionately avoiding the cost of air pollution. All right, disproportionately, it's an important word. Because to what extent matters? L.A. is 25% white, non-Hispanic white, 49% Latino. There are almost twice as many Latino drivers as white drivers. Now, you'd have to look up, as I did, car ownership. 91% of white Los Angelinos have a car or access to a car. 88% of Los Angelinos who are Latino have access to a car. The study does its research. We assign each trip as white or non-white. And then it says that they look at census tracks adjacent to Interstates 110 and 105, in predominantly black and Latino South Los Angeles, and they find commuters driving through these tracks, respectively, are 10 and 13 percentage points whiter than the local resident population. So that's the disproportionate. White drivers, people who live near the tracks, black and Latino, it's disproportionate, but 10 or 13% higher. Not a lot more likely to be white. And notice that the study says that The drivers are 10 and 13 percentage points whiter than the local resident population. Okay, so they're more likely to be white, but they're not likely to be white. They're not even close to likely to be white. The overall LA population is 25% white. So if you take the higher figure, you're talking about 28% of the cars in LA spewing pollution are white drivers. But wait, that's not actually what they're saying. They're not saying that the drivers are more likely to be white than the overall population of the city. They're just talking about the overall population of South LA, once called South Central, which is 11.7% non-Hispanic white. So there are white drivers who indeed are polluting the air breathed by LA's people of color. Those white polluters account for 13.2% of the polluters. Other drivers, if you want to call them polluters of color, account for 86.8% of the pollution. And as far as the more affluent part of the study doesn't get into wealth at all. Though it is true that whites are wealthier in L.A. and car owners are more likely to be wealthier than non-car owners. Then, of course, there are electric vehicles, which are much more likely to be owned by white people, although L.A. has seven and a half million cars, trucks, and motorcycles, and the whole state only has a million electric vehicles. But electric vehicle ownership does skew heavily white. So the most accurate headline, if you want to be really blunt, is to say, not how white and affluent drivers are polluting the air breathed by LA's people of color, but more like the vast majority of LA pollution spews from cars driven by black or Latino drivers. It's not really fair to black drivers, it's mostly Latino. Or something, how about this? Drivers of color causing vast majority of particulate matter in air. That is not a construction of a headline that I would like or prefer. It is certainly not one that the LA Times could ever live with. But phrasing things for the maximum racial shock, it's sure to engender an aggrieved reaction on the right. And the LA Times likes that. In fact, I'd say they love that. In fact, that's why they do the journalism in the way they do it. You know, not everyone. There was a first pass at this study that was responsible. It played to a whisper. Then there was a pass that was incendiary and it played to a gigantic bang. And as far as Sammy Roth and his complicity, I could propose a few solutions. One, get an EV. Two, carpool with a Latino. Three, personally move into a more heavily Black or Latino census tract, and then you could generate some articles on gentrification, agonizing over that. Or use your fairly large platform to highlight problems, but do so with a lot of responsibility. Although that, as I said, has been tried to the tune of 4,000 views versus checking now About 8 million views thus far for Sammy's article. It is not your fault, Sammy. We all have, what is the word? Oh, yes, complicity. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the COO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash gist. Boom, Prue Jeep and thanks for listening.